When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, still at the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. It's been a long time. Uh, there was lots of talk last week about Andy Burnham being the selfie king of the Labour Party Conference. There's only one person who's the selfie king this time. Did you have a good conference? Good, I'm glad. Take care. Rishi, do you get fed up with doing all these selfies? No, no it's, gosh, it's great, actually. It's You're like a rock star. It is just... Uh, You're more popular than Andy Burnham was last week. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't been able to do this for that is true same people so. same people well I'll let you go because you're very it's much nice, in tomorrow nice to be able to see everyone say thank you for all their support absolutely good to see you and I actually stopped uh, some of the uh, people asking Rishi Sunak for a selfie to ask them why Hope you guys have a good time. Hi guys, I'm from Times Radio. Yeah. Why do you love Rishi Sunak so much? He's amazing, isn't he? It's Rishi, isn't it? He can't, he can't beat him. How, why is he amazing? I think, uh, I think he's next prime minister material. He seems to have everything we need and very competent when talking, and he's very reassuring to. He's like a rock star. Look at all these people having their photos taken. I with know. Great. Next Boris Johnson, nice to say. Mm. Next Boris Johnson. Next Boris Johnson, yeah. that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that, that, that's yeah. how, how old are you all? How old are you all? 17. 19. What, what, yeah. what are you all doing here? Why are you with the Conservative Party? Why aren't you like... Ready to twist. We're all, uh, me, Daniel and Thomas are from Liverpool. Right. So, young, young, young Tories from Liverpool. Young that sounds Tories like hard work. Liverpool. <laughs> and, you know, Rishi Sunak down there, he speaks in such confidence in times of such economic hardship and it, I think it, it, it gives the British public hope I mean sitting there listening to him he was outstanding and he made me feel proud of the party so that, that's who you really like which member of the cabinet don't you like oh. I don't think we're allowed to comment on that yeah <laughs> god you're so well trained as well anyway thank you very much oh, good to meet you, you. cheers guys Right, enough of that nonsense. Coming up on today's episode of the podcast, really interesting chat with Nick Timothy. You'll remember he was a special advisor to Theresa May at the Home Office uh, for uh, six years, longest serving uh, Home Secretary in modern history. Uh, big day, of course, today. Uh, Priti Patel was giving her speech at the Conservative Party Conference. We've got Nick Timothy on. Uh, also to talk about uh, levelling up uh, and, uh, yeah, that election, because obviously he followed Theresa May into uh, Downing Street in uh, 2016, but then left a year later after that election went so badly wrong. So you have a really probably interesting chat with Nick Timothy coming up. But first, our columnist panel in joining us today in Manchester was uh, the Financial Times' Seb Payne and Kate Andrews from The Spectator. You were both just discussing how much you enjoyed not having WhatsApp. Yes, yes. Oh. This conference was so weird. From about five o'clock yesterday, the whole thing ground to a halt as WhatsApp disappeared. And I think I felt more bereft than at any time over the past 18 months. I just had no idea what to do. You know, how do you communicate with colleagues, friends, family? And I had to do an unthinkable thing. I had to go and find a physical Tory party press officer and ask them a question in person. Why, why didn't you just send them a text? 
See, that's the kind of thinking <laughs> that didn't occur to me at the time when I was in the stages of a nervous breakdown well, and not being able to WhatsApp anyone. Yeah, it's the kind of innovative thinking you need in a crisis. And uh, unfortunately for Seb, you weren't around. And it, it just goes to show how much politics relies on WhatsApp. It is. And what I realized, I was trying to knit together a story for, t uh, for that evening's FT. And I was going through my contacts, MPs, um, special advisors, ministers. And I just realized everything is there. And it also made me have this horrific feeling. I thought, wait a minute, what if this is a massive hack and everyone's WhatsApps are going to go into the public domain? That was a, wow, that's a terrible Exactly. And I He's still shaking. I'm, exactly. <laughs> I've not recovered yet. And I was just thinking... Imagine all the stuff everyone's ever said on WhatsApp, and if all that just went into the public domain, it would be the end of society, really. Yeah, well, it, it turns out I think they just unplugged something, and now they've plugged it back in, so all is well with the world again. Yeah, I just ignored the, the WhatsApp outage and went to bed. It was lovely. That sounds I'm like incredibly smunk today. <laughs> uh, as I am every day. You're looking uh, much sure. prettier than we are. So that's let's not give this is radio. Let's not get bothered. Uh, right, I suppose we should talk about uh, politics. And let, let's start with Brexit. It was really interesting. We've got an interview coming up uh, with Andy Street in about an hour's time. Uh, and I pressed him on the, this, you know, uh, he basically said, well, you know, the wages, if wages are going to go up, then uh, prices are going to go up. And he said, that's just the price that we have to pay. That's the price of Brexit. Is he, is he right, Kate? Well, I would dispute that this is all about Brexit to begin with. So the new immigration policy um, was always going to be painful for some businesses. They were complaining about it in January 2020. And the prime minister's response at the time, similar to now, is, well, you're just going to have to hike your wages for native workers here at home. What we weren't expecting was a global pandemic that saw roughly a million people leave the country essentially overnight. And so we knew that there was going to be some tightening in the labor market. We did not realize it was going to be plus a million people gone on top of that. So I think it's a mistake to say this is just about Brexit. Um, the trade-off for the labor shortage that we're experiencing now, and there's some real pain around that, is that wage on average are, are skyrocketing. Um, and they're skyrocketing for people who I think were very much taken advantage of or overlooked for a decade leading up to this point. Um, you know, they used to be called low skilled. Now they're called key workers after the pandemic. Um, so, you know, there are real winners and losers from this. And we should probably, we have to acknowledge both sides of it. I think it's really silly to pretend that there's no pain associated with this. Customer prices are going to go up, but we also have to recognize that people who were overlooked for wage increases for had stagnant wages for a decade are also going to be the winners in this situation. And it's hard to fault that in some ways. Well, I suppose the, 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 where Brexit kicks in, uh, Seb, is that had Brexit not happened, some of these labour shortages wouldn't be happening because people could come in from elsewhere in the EU. I think that's certainly true, Matt. And the, the way that Boris Johnson and his government are leaning into this is really quite fascinating because they've, all, they've talked about you know, ending the economic model we had before. They described it as the EU's economic model. I'm not quite sure how it's linked to the EU, but never mind. Um, and the idea is that they are actively trying to push wages higher. What I'm concerned about is, and if we go back to the lessons of the 1970 when inflation was rampant, are you going to get the productivity gains that go with that? Because if not, then you just get inflation. But clearly... The Tories think that the message coming out of this conference that we are increasing wages is one that goes 
down quite well with the general public, which it certainly does. But the transition, I think you were alluding to this, Kate, to get to that point is going to be very bumpy. And I do actually wonder if ministers are prepared for this to go on for months, if not longer. You know, Rishi Sunak's talked about the disruption in Hawley is going on till Christmas. But, you know, readjusting a labour market after a certain model that's lasted for several decades, that's not going to be quick and it's not going to be simple. And at the moment, Boris Johnson, if you've seen from his morning interviews, he's riding high. He thinks this is his party. He's in an imperial mode, shall we say. But I do wonder if he'll be able to hold his nerve to that point. But they seem confident they will get there. Do you think, in part, the, um, the reason I focus so much on we're putting up wages, Kate, is to slightly uh, gloss over the fact they're also putting up taxes? Absolutely. Uh, and this is one of the, the, the biggest risks to this Tory government is a, a looming cost of living crisis. Uh, I don't think the question is, is whether or not it happens. It's how bad it is. Because you have this perfect storm of inflation is going up, even if it doesn't um, spiral out of control. And goodness, let's hope it doesn't. The Bank of England now thinks inflation is going up to be above 4% by the end of the year. Electricity bills are going up this winter. The gas shortage is real. Um, the tax hikes haven't come in yet, but they're going to come in and people are going to feel it. Prices are going up. Uh, and so, yeah, again, the, they're, they're trying to, to point out where the data increasing is actually a good thing. Um, but I think this could uh, become quite painful. And, you know, if your wages are going up, great. But if prices are also going up and you don't feel like you're better off, you know, even if you don't know exactly why that is, you're going to look to the Tory government and think, well, y your selling point is that I'm always supposed to be a bit better off. That's the reason we elect people like you. And if it isn't the case, then you're going to you're going to be frustrated. The last thing I would say, though, on this Brexit point is let's not forget that um, I mean, Brexit isn't the reason that people left. The reason people left the country was because of COVID. Mm. And even if we hadn't left the European Union, it, it strikes me that many, many people, you know, hundreds of thousands would have still gone home to where they felt safer. Um, and a lot of these shortages aren't just being felt in the UK. They're being felt Europe wide. There's a reason. I think it's something like handful of, of uh, lorry drivers have actually used the scheme now, the visa scheme to come to the UK. It's like 30 or 40 something yeah, out of 5,000 visas. Exactly. And um, that's because the, the, you know, the labor market has fundamentally changed. These people have moved into different kinds of roles. It's an issue in the EU as well as it is in the UK. And what about uh, Rishi Sunak more broadly? He was sort of defending those tax rises yesterday, uh, Seb, saying that... Um, they're not unconservative, the reckless borrowing and spending, that's unconservative, and trying to argue that, that putting up uh, national insurance to pay for the NHS and social care was the conservative thing to do. Do you think he persuaded the hall? To a certain extent, and I think the historical um, echo they want to get there is what Margaret Thatcher did in her early budgets when, again, public spending and inflation were issues and she raised taxes to then eventually cut them much later in her premiership. And I'm sure that's exactly what Rishi Sunak would want to do. But I went to a fringe event yesterday where Steve Baker was there, the Libertarian Conservative MP, and he said to the whole room, we're all socialists now. And they all laughed. And he just sort of did his, oh, you know, freedom cries, smaller state, lower taxes. That's still where the heart of the Conservative Party is, and you're going to get much more applause, much more plaudits for that kind of language than what Rishi Sunak was saying. But I guess the calculation that Sunak and Johnson have made is the wider public, they don't think about tax in the way that people like Kate and I do. You know, they just look at their lives, they look at the cost of living. And I do think it'll be interesting to know when that is going to hit, because the opinion polls are kind of extraordinary when you think of the disruption outside with the lorry drivers, with turkeys, with pumpkins, you name it. We're in this conference hall and everyone's very upbeat, they're happy. It's like we're in an alternative reality in some ways. But I suppose there is an interesting question, though, isn't there? The, the, the Steve Bakers of this world who would like low taxes and you know, low borrowing and all that as well, 
would they have been happy to have ridden out the last 18 months if Rishi Sunak hadn't spent all that money? You know, you can't have it both ways. Part of the reason why the Conservative Party are in the strong position they are is because they've spent so much money in the last 18 months shoring up, whether it's furlough or business grants or, or whatever else. And it's sort of quite easy to go to a fringe event, Kate, and get a round of applause for saying, oh, we should have lower taxes. But, it, but, but while... Part of the reason why there's such a good atmosphere is because Rishi Sunak spent such a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah, and protected so many jobs. Uh, unemployment was supposed to peak at over 12%, and it's below 5%. And I don't think you cannot credit the furlough scheme, but it was extremely expensive. I think close to £70 billion it's going to come to. Um, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think Rishi Sunak is being more honest with the grassroots than a lot of other members of the party. That's interesting. He's saying, look, fiscal responsibility and tax cuts are both conservative principles, but at the moment we can't afford both so i've decided to go for fiscal responsibility and actually people like me have a lot of sympathy for that because he's looking at inflation he's looking at the possibility of rising interest rates and he wants to make sure that the government can continue to pay its bills it's not a sexy topic it's not easily persuadable but i think the chancellor's doing a pretty good job of making the case the difficulty though and where and where rishi and thatcher are different is that the thatcher government was very clear that tax cuts were the end goal that we were going to get to tax cuts after taxes were raised. And this government, Rishi said he wants tax cuts, but we don't know at all when they might be coming in. And I struggle to see a scenario where they are cut in the near future, near future if anything. I fear they're going to rise again because the NHS isn't going to want to give the money over to social care that it's supposed to do in a few years' time, um, coming from this new national insurance hike. So I fear that the conversation is in the wrong place. And maybe that's where the, the party's getting it so wrong. I've heard so many ministers at these drinks receptions and fringe events say, you know, we're the party of low tax. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not right now. And, and you know, at least Rishi's being honest about that and he's making the case. Uh, but I think the conversation for the Tories is still in the wrong place. And I see what the language, Kate, is actually really interesting. They're now not actually saying we are the party of low tax. We are the party of lower tax. <laughs> and it's a classic thing that they do. So they can say Labour wants high taxes. We want lower taxes. We don't, we don't even know if that's true because Labour oppose the national insurance. I mean, it's an incredible thing that Labour Party are opposing national insurance rights in the NHS, yeah. but they are. So based on what we know right now on uh, Labour tax plans... And they want to scrap business rates. Yes. And that hasn't been, you know, the, the shadow chancellor laid down the gauntlet and Rishi Sunak did not pick it up. And actually the Labour Party conference last week, you know, the British Chambers of Commerce, the CBI, they were lapping all that up. No, of course they were. And this just shows this sort of alternative reality we're in, where I just think people, A, aren't thinking about politics that much. They're just delighted we're not in lockdown. Um, and I Who think, can blame them? I, exactly. <laughs> but I think there will be a point when this cost of living stuff does kick in. And I think, obviously, this week, you've got the universal credit uplift is going to end. The furlough scheme has ended. And that will have an economic impact. And you have to think at some point, you know, not every response will just be Conservatives plus 10 points to every single thing that goes wrong in the country. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, people complain to me about saying, you know, I, I always note, well, the Tories are still four, five, six, seven points ahead of yeah. the polls, despite all of the obvious uh, areas of criticism. One other thing I just wanted to um, uh, touch on, uh, Seb, like, I, I sort of speaking to Andy Street later on. You've been taking a look at one of, as part of trying to flesh out what on earth levelling up is, Michael Gove suggesting more local mayors. We've obviously got Andy Street in uh, West Midlands, Andy Burnham here in Greater Manchester. What other areas could get them, do you think? 
So I think the department for levelling up, um, as it's called, or someone told me apparently he's got the nickname Deluxe in Whitehall, which is... Deluxe? Because if you do the acronyms, apparently that just about works. Um, so we're deluxing the country or deluxing or whatever oh metaphor you want. Sorry, I won't go any further. <laughs> um, but I think fundamentally you've got North Yorkshire, apparently they're talking to. You've got Cumbria, they're also talking to. But I think one interesting thing that Michael Gove is looking at is county deals. Because if you look at the west of England, for example, where would you create a conurbation to have a mayor like Greater Manchester there. So they clearly want to do more of those. And what's interesting about how Mr. Gove's describing levelling up is we all just think of it as pork barrelling, just throwing money at places to make them vote Tory. He wants them to be able to attract much more money coming inwards. And part of that may be having different tax-raising powers. I asked him in the event I did at the conference yesterday, could you devolve income tax or corporation tax or a business rate? And he said, not yet. So I think oh, okay. that is a very interesting one to watch. Now, obviously, the logistics of doing that are horrifically complicated, but it does show things the government are doing to look at this in a different way. So it's not just about piling money in, as we report in the FT this morning. The big white paper on levelling up is coming out on October the 27th. So by the end of the month, we should actually have some kind of policy so we can say exactly what levelling up is about. Kate Andrews and Seb Payne there. Right, coming up next is my chat with Nick Timothy. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for my interview with Nick Timothy. We're talking a bit about what's, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of policy uh, and all that sort of thing. But explain what it is really like in the Home Office. Because uh, particularly during the Labour years, Tony Blair had a new Home Secretary sort of once a year for various reasons. They had to resign, whether they lost files, or they lost prisoners or whatever it might be. What is it like in the Home Office as an institution? And when you arrive with Theresa May in 2010, try to get your head around all of that. Because ultimately, if it, something goes wrong, the buck's got to stop with you and, yeah. and, and the Home Secretary. Well, I guess the first thing to say is I went into the Home Office in 2010 with a full head of hair. And I left in 2015 <laughs> completely bald, uh, which says quite a lot about uh, what it's like to work there. Um, I think it was Jack Straw who was one of Tony Blair's Home Secretaries who said... The problem with the Home Office is um, at any one time there will be several dozen officials working in the department on something that will end your career. And the problem is you don't know who they are and they don't know who they are either. <laughs> um, and it is a little bit like that. And I think the reason it's like that is because obviously there's huge sensitivity about the things that the department <coughs> is responsible for, whether that's uh, crime and policing or the immigration system, visas, etc., or, you know, the most serious and um, counter-terrorism. And you're responsible for um, setting the policy, um, in some cases um, holding the organisations that do the operational delivery to account. Um, but there's, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of decisions every year in terms of issuing visas, uh, letting people cross across the border and that kind of thing. And you end up politically responsible and, you know, potentially on the firing line. Um, if there's a mistake on the front line. So how is it? What was the trick? How did Theresa May survive in that job in a way that so many of her predecessors didn't? Uh, pure control freakery, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which may not have served us so well in Number 10, but did serve us well in the Home Office. I mean, you've just got to maintain um, a really tight grip. You've got to know everything that's going on. Any policy paper um, you know, has to come up. Uh, via the special advisors, via the private office, uh, via the junior ministers. So there are you know, layers, of, layers of checks to make sure you're not accidentally signing uh, your own death warrant. Um, and, <laughs> and making sure that, um, that the institutions, um, you know, the organizations that deliver the stuff at the sharp end are working and the people who are running them are accountable. 
Um, and that, I think, is one of the hardest bits. Um, it's interesting you said that, contrasting with what worked at the Home Office working less well. In it, 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 Are some people more suited to being effective cabinet ministers than prime ministers, do you think? In the end, what was very successful at the Home Office for Theresa, just didn't, you just can't be like that if you become prime minister. Yeah, I think that happens. I mean, I think... Um, I mean, Gordon Brown was a, a, a classic example. A classic example. I think, you know, in a department, you've got to be across everything. In number 10, um, you, you can't be in the weeds of policy in the same way. Um, I think I've written before that basically in number 10, it's your job to sort of write the score uh, and conduct the orchestra, but not play the instruments. Um, and I think for some politicians, that's quite difficult to do, especially if you've like, been in the Home Office for six yeah, yeah. years or in Brown's case, been in the Treasury for such a long time. And, you know, the, the opposite is true. Um, but, you know, I, Boris is a sort of big picture, sort of primary colours uh, kind of prime minister. And, and I, you know, I, to be honest, I can't imagine him being the work and pension secretary. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, making so sure that money is being processed on, you know, against <laughs> deadlines is probably yeah. not his, his back. Let's turn our attention then to the current, uh, the current Home Secretary and some of the pressures that, that she faces. Um, it does feel like uh, she's very good at making announcements and then... Not a lot happening. I mean, the number of times, and we've, we've talked about it, uh, the, um, the, the, the issue of migrants crossing the channel. And we've had uh, the announcement that they're going to be sent back uh, to France. They're going to be pushed back by the Royal Navy. They're going to be sent to the Ascension Islands to be processed. They're going to be put on ferries, oil rigs. It's TikTok's fault, all of this stuff. And yet the numbers keep going up. Is that, is that a danger that she's... She's very good at making eye-catching announcements that appeal to, frankly, the the right-wing press, but without delivering on the results. Well, I think it's always a challenge for any cabinet minister because there's always a gap between when you say you're going to do something and when the results of that policy start to come through. And it's quite easy to look like you're just talking about it and not doing it. Um, In this particular case, um, you know, the, the channel crossings are... It's very complicated. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we talk about border control or when we talk about the immigration system, quite often people talk as though, oh, you just turn off the tap or you turn it back on again. And you know, in the immigration system overall, it's a really complicated international labour market with you know, millions of people trying to move around the world, hundreds of different immigration rules you need to change. With the border crossings, um, you know, a lot of this stuff actually relates to what's going on in completely different parts of the world. Um, actually, one thing we don't ever talk about is Libya used to basically be Europe's forward border, uh, and we smashed up the Libyan state. Yeah. Uh, and actually, a lot of these problems have followed from uh, from those decisions. Um, uh, and you've got to try to work out what it is that's drawing people to the country and and address those things, I think. I mean, my personal view is, in the end, you, you have to process asylum claims offshore. And you have to you have to say, if you do get to Britain and claim asylum in Britain in this way, you're actually not necessarily going to stay in Britain. Um, you're, going to, you're going to go somewhere else, you'll be processed and sure, if you're worthy of asylum in the end, then you come. Um, but the big draw really is being able to get to the country and then just you know, uh, claim asylum straight away, maybe work illegally, we've got a very open economy uh, and you know, we're, not, we're not going to change our economic model overnight just to sort of fix this particular yeah, problem. Yeah. That would be the tail wagging the dog. So, so is, you've got is, to work out is the mistake, how you stop Is the, the mistake then chasing the headlines rather than, you know, it is a very complicated issue, but simplifying it with we're going to send in the gunboats or whatever the, the, the next headline. Is that, the, is that a problem, chasing headlines like that? Well, I think if you talk to the people in the Home Office, they, I, think, I think they do have a pretty good idea of what 
the factors are that's driving the problem. And if you read between the lines of what's you know what's <laughs> in the latest immigration bill, or uh, and I imagine if you read between the lines of what Pretty will say in her speech today, um, then then I think you know I think they understand that you know what I'm talking about is probably uh, the main way in which you might address this problem. But the, you know the issue with that is it's going to take time. You've yeah. got to legislate for it. You've got to find partners to to do the offshore processing. You've got to set it up. You know, it's not, none of this stuff is going to happen in months. Uh, let's do, I'm sort of drifting into talking about uh, immigration. Uh, let's hear from your old boss, in fact, Theresa May, when she was uh, Prime Minister, arguing, as Peter Patel does today, that refugees should stay in the first safe country they reach. Can we hear Theresa May? We should help ensure that refugees claim asylum in the first safe country they reach and embed this as a principle. The current trend of onward movement benefits criminal gangs, endangers people and reduces the prospects of refugees ever returning home to rebuild their countries. So we must do far more to support the first safe countries themselves, assisting the refugees and host communities, an approach that is starting to work in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey. That was five years ago, she was saying. That. We're still having the same conversation. Maybe- well, we are, but actually I think the country has sort of been inching uh, towards the right kind of policy and um, and actually what she's talking about there in uh, in relation to the Syria crisis um, actually did really help to stem the flow of refugees to Britain so uh, what the government did was um, uh, give a lot of support to the neighboring countries uh, the, I mean the percentage of the population living in Lebanon and Jordan who were refugees from Syria was extraordinarily high I don't remember the numbers but it was very high uh, we gave a lot of support to those countries to help people in the region, and we created a specific scheme uh, to help the most vulnerable Syrians who really needed help that you could only really get in a country like Britain, and brought those people to Britain, rather than rather than encouraging or taking a slightly weak approach to allowing the people who take the, undertake the illegal journeys, who are disproportionately young, male, uh, often better off, certainly fitter and healthier. Um, uh, so that we were helping the most vulnerable uh, and we were supporting a much greater number of people in the region. And I think you can see similar principles applying to what the government's been trying to do with Afghanistan. Do you, do you rate Priti Patel as a Home Secretary? Yeah, she's good. You think she's... Is she, is she up to the job of get, actually fixing things rather than just finding headlines? Of course she is. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, and a place like the Home Office is never fixed. <laughs> uh, um, you know, there's... There's politics and the challenges of politics you know, change all the time. If you, um, you know, if you think you've cracked the immigration system, uh, <laughs> then then it's probably time to take a cold shower because uh, because you know um, international smuggling, gangs uh, adapt, um, people spot loopholes in in your rules that need to be tightened. Um, you know, economic demands change. People. Um, uh, people get drawn into different visa routes. You've got to you've got to be sort of constantly uh, vigilant to make sure you've got control. And and so I think um, I said I said this to um, a, a secretary of state in a different department quite recently. Um, uh, pretty much every secretary of state has criticised all the way through their tenure. And then sometimes we look back at some of them and say they were quite good. Um, <laughs> and and you know, it's a hard job, yeah. um, but she's doing it. Obviously, one of the big uh, issues that she's had to, to grapple with in the last week or so is is the Met Police and the yep. fallout of uh, uh, from the Sarah Everard case. What's your What's your assessment on if 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 Theresa May had still been in the Home Office, you still been in the Home Office, would you have kept Cressida Dick in that job? Uh, personally, I wouldn't, um, but I don't think that is the only solution to the 
problem. Uh, I mean, I think the Mets top team needs to change in its entirety. We need um, a completely new culture. Um, I think the police have been reformed quite a lot over the last 10 years. Um, some of it's worked, some of it hasn't. Um, uh, with the Met in particular, uh, I think there's, there's a big culture problem that needs to be investigated. I mean, showing other forces, I think there's a bigger problem in the Met. Um, there's plenty of things that could be done to tighten up in terms of you know, stopping police officers from retiring or resigning when they're still under investigation for misconduct and that kind of thing. Um, but actually, I think the big problem for London is that the Met, every other police force in the country is accountable to a police and crime commissioner or a, or a mayor. And the Met has London responsibilities, um, policing London, for which it's accountable to the mayor. Uh, but it also has national responsibilities like counter-terrorism, protection of public figures and that kind of thing, for which it's accountable to the Home Secretary. And the complicated... Um, accountability arrangements, I think, Does that allow... Mean it's sort of not accountable to anybody. Yeah, I think it... I mean, it, it provides a temptation to the Home Office to intervene <laughs> and interfere, uh, which I don't think is ever a good thing. Uh, and it allows the mayor to sort of say, well, I'm not really in charge, uh, when actually, legally, he is for the policing of London. Uh, so I think one of the things you could do is take those national commands out of the Met, make the Met purely a, lo a London local Just a force. Just London police force, yeah. And give those national commands to, to the National Crime Agency. Well, if you've been surprised, I mean, I think lots of people uh, here reading about the Sarah Everard case, reading about how you know, Wayne Cousins was known as the rapist, the, the, the so-called banter, the misogynistic stuff being shared in WhatsApp groups and all that sort of thing. Has that surprised you? Was it your, your time dealing with the Met, does that entirely fit your, your perception of the culture? Yeah, very sadly, I think it's, it's a part of police culture which needs to change. Uh, I think, you know, we, we did plenty of things, I think, in the Home Office in terms of reforming the Police Federation, uh, introducing specific criminal offences for certain things to do with police conduct. Um, we made the Inspectorate of Constabulary much stronger, much more independent of the cops. Um, but, you know, much more needs to be done. And uh, I, think there's, I think there's a case for some kind of inquiry into police culture, uh, whether that's by HMIC or whether it's something uh, separate. Sorry, HMIC is the yeah, inspector. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, this isn't an isolated case. We, you see stories all the time of uh, police officers who have either disrespected victims. There are, uh, there's a terrible story of police officers taking selfies with um, the dead bodies of murder victims quite recently. Um, and, and, and police officers who take advantage of vulnerable victims of crime and enter into sexual relationships with them. It's, this is not acceptable stuff. And it's not enough to say, oh, he's a bad apple or there's one or two bad apples. There is a wider systemic problem with the culture. One of the things that happened in your time with the Home Office is this idea of sort of bringing in a, a, someone from outside the UK, sort of Bill Batten-style commissioner to sort of shake things up. And that was blocked at the time. Uh, um, by, I think, by Theresa May. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, do you think that was a mistake? Does it need someone to come completely outside the system and say, enough is enough, this, this, this can't go on? Well, she didn't want to hire Bill Brasson um, partly because of the national responsibilities of the Met. So because of counter-terrorism, because uh, of its counter-terrorism responsibilities, it's quite difficult to have a foreign national come in. Uh, because from of New the, York. Yeah, 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 because of the sensitivities uh, of the job. I suspect, actually... You know, that was surmountable. Uh, but I think she, she, she didn't want uh, to make that higher, I think mainly for that reason. And she appointed Bernard Hogan Howe, who um, uh, at Merseyside had been a really like, tough, in-your-face, um, sort of 
you know, intimidating criminals, like a really good police leader. Uh, and I think there was a, there was a good sort of reason and rationality behind that decision. We actually changed the law to allow uh, um, foreign nationals from. I can't remember if we made it specific about common law jurisdictions, but um, uh, foreign police chiefs to be able to come in uh, um, um, and become chief constables in this country. Um, and, I mean, I think there is a problem with, uh, with a dearth of talent at the top ranks of the police. So we need to open it up in some way, whether it's about getting foreigners to come in or whether it's about having more forms of direct entry where people from the outside can, can enter into leadership positions at, at, at senior ranks. Because I suppose if you keep removing someone at the top, you'll just promote people out of the same culture. Exactly. So it doesn't, it we've doesn't got 43 forces yeah. in England and Wales, uh, and so we've got 43 chief constables to choose from. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's what I, mean, I suppose it goes back to the point, if you separate the two out, then it makes it more, more palatable. Uh, it's Matt Trotty speaking to uh, Nick Timothy, former advisor to uh, Theresa May at the Home Office and uh, at Number 10. We'll talk about politics more generally next here on Times Radio. On digital radio, on the web, and via the Times Radio app. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, Matt Chorley live from the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. Still joined by Nick Timothy, former special advisor to Theresa May at the Home Office, and then later at number 10. Uh, now, um, Nick, I want to talk to you about Erdington conservatism. In the run-up to the 20... I think I wrote quite a long piece of the Times about it back in 2017, ahead of the 2017 election. And it was a sort of... It was your idea of sort of conservatism uh, conservatives appealing to working class blue collar workers it was a it was a shift away from the sort of notting hillness of david cameron's sort of uh, liberalism liberal conservatism explain what the the, the pitch was first of all uh, for erdington conservatism and was it just an early did you do all the heavy lifting for boris johnson essentially but smashing through the red wall uh well i think there's a there's a kind of commonality in the way He's approached the job to what we tried to do, but you know it didn't work for us. Yeah. And, he's <laughs> and you know he won the red wall, so uh, well done him. Um, I mean, the the original position was because uh, we'd ha- we'd had um, these debates about the way the Tory party needed to change in the past, and uh, and the way David Cameron had uh, changed the party uh, was kind of dismissed as Soho modernisation. It's like, you know, uh, liberal, very acceptable to people of a certain class, uh, very acceptable at, um, you know, dinner parties in London and that kind of thing. Um, uh, But quite far removed from, uh, you know, the interests and values of a lot of people out in the rest of the country. And then there was was another argument that the Tory party needed to follow, so-called Easter House modernisation, which was named after the uh, estate in Glasgow, uh, which was all about how the party had to focus on the very poorest and um, uh, had an almost like uh, 19th century evangelical feel to it. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I said, well, no, there needs to be a sort of, there's a third approach, uh, which uh, actually where the party needs to put itself at the service of uh, working class families, people who have a job but don't have an especially high income. Uh, they might own their own home, but, you know, they have insecurity about whether they can certainly pay the mortgage. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they don't have much by way of savings and that kind of thing. Um, and if we were to do that, then we needed to, uh, we needed to change and, and be much more open-minded uh, about the role of the state and the good that government can do, as uh, to borrow a phrase I once wrote, <laughs> um, and, um, and, and also to empower communities yeah. much more. So instead of thinking about politics in terms of it being about the market versus the state, you should think about the 
the market, the state and community as a kind of partnership of three where, uh, you know, not, no one of those things can survive without the other two. So, so why, why didn't it work? Was it, was it because uh, your um, uh, diagnosis of the problem seems very similar? The, the, the solution, you know, the people you, you wanted to reach was the same. Is, it, is, it, is Boris Johnson a better politician than Theresa May it, it, it sort of finishing the job? Uh, well, it's certainly a much better um, campaigner in elections, yeah. uh, and that's one of the reasons. I mean, I mean, like, we could devote the whole day <laughs> of broadcasting to talking about why it didn't work. Um, I mean, it, you know, in the first year that she had in Downing Street, it was incredibly popular. People heard it. They liked it. Um, uh, um, but, you know, she then wasn't able to follow through for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I was only there for that year. Uh, I played my part in screwing up the 2017 <laughs> election, which is why I wasn't there after that. Um, uh, but, you know, the election going wrong, um, and for all the reasons that went wrong, um, the, uh, you know, the fact that the government was consumed with the Brexit wars, um, and if, you know, if, if there'd been a much bigger majority, then maybe she'd have been able to do both Brexit and some of the reforms she was talking about. But I think also, uh, ultimately... Um, she wasn't quite prepared to go as far as she needed to go. So I remember in the in the year in Downing Street between the Brexit referendum and the 17 election, talking you know, on several occasions about um, you know how can we change fiscal policy uh, because we're basically in this straitjacket of uh, economic policies that have been set by George Osborne, and and actually you know the economics of austerity um, certainly by that time I think weren't right. Uh, the politi politics of austerity were pretty terrible as well, yeah. and and I couldn't. I, I I tried and failed to sort of get her off that um, fiscal policy we inherited. We did change it a little bit to allow for a bit more investment spending, but that was about it. So, you know, Boris is, Boris went the whole hog. Uh, he's uh, you know he's he's a great campaigner. Uh, he won the election. Um, he, um, he he did Brexit, <laughs> uh, and um, and and he's. He's quite open-minded about spending money. He's changed fiscal policy. Uh, obviously, events have also interrupted, uh, you know, his premiership yeah. uh, with COVID. And I think in, in, the interesting thing now is, uh, you know, does he continue and see through the logic of his yeah. positions? Because if you know, if we now enter into a period of uh, returned austerity because of the stock of debt we've built up over the last year or two, uh, then I think the you know the mission falls. Uh, um, you obviously touched on the fact you were there in, in number 10 for a year. Uh, you left uh, after the 17, 2017 election, along with Fiona Hill. You were joint, uh, joint chiefs of staff. And at that time, there were lots of stories about the way that you'd both treated people in and around number 10. Looking back now, I mean, what is it now? We're four years on. Do you look back now and think, do you have any regrets about that? Do you wish it, it played out differently? Well, I mean, I have regrets about the way the election worked, uh, some, <laughs> some of which... Uh, uh, was you know frankly directly you know my responsibility and I take responsibility for that. Um, some of which was some other stuff, where um, you know it was down to decisions made by other people. But I was in the room and I could have said, "Why are we doing this? Uh, <laughs> like this isn't actually consistent with the strategy we'd set uh, in the year before the election." Yeah. And I and I, <laughs> I didn't do it. Yeah. And I will sort of always wonder about that. Uh, in terms of treating people uh, uh, well or badly, I just like. To be perfectly honest, those stories just aren't true. I mean, a, a lot gets said. You know, I became a bit of a pantomime villain uh, because of my role in the election. And and then it becomes open season and people say all sorts of things about you. You know, frankly, people were a bit angry with me because of the manifesto. 
and it became open season. But um, all the, I think almost all my uh, former colleagues from Number 10 are here and I've been drinking with them and seeing them and they come round for dinner and we're mates. Uh, what about Theresa May? She seems to be enjoying needling Boris Johnson from the back benches. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, she kind of resembles Ted Heath in a skirt these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, that, is, that a, is that a good strategy for her, do you think? I would advise against it, to be honest. I think. Are you still in touch? Well, do you, do you speak? No, we no. don't. We don't really talk anymore. But I think that must be weird. You worked so closely with her. You basically made her prime minister. Uh, it's a bit weird. Uh, well, it was a bit weird. It's not really weird anymore. You don't spend your time um, thinking. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and I just think it is quite tricky being a former prime minister in Parliament. Um, and I think it's a good thing that she stayed. It's I good totally for agree Parliament. with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be, uh, Parliament would be so much better if it had more yeah. former chancellors, former foreign secretaries, former prime ministers. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, and, you know, there's, <laughs> there's just not very much experience on those back benches. And it is good to have somebody say, you know, well, we tried this and <laughs> the reason it didn't work yeah. was the following. We did this, this, yeah, we did it then, we did it then, we did it then. It doesn't yeah. work. Don't but do I it. Think she, I think she needs to... Be a bit more selective in her criticisms. Uh, she doesn't want to just look like she's a bit bitter. Yeah. Uh, and, and she could be a bit more constructive in the way she says things. And are you enjoying conference? Is, is yeah. it a thing that you presume you enjoy it more when you haven't got to write the speech and Yeah, it's, well, this year about... is a very different experience for me yeah. because uh, it's actually my first year back since uh, the 2016, election, uh, 2016 conference. And, uh, and yes, yeah, really, it's quite easy. You just... See friends, have a few drinks, uh, do a few interviews. Pop on the radio. Uh, and, and, and it's, yeah, it's not nearly as hard work as actually doing <laughs> it. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>